You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and season's greetings from the THE campus team. Welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm Sarah Custer. And I'm Miranda Prynne. In the episode today, we're speaking with the authors of two of our most read resources on THE campus this year, and the topic addressed in both of them, I think, reflects some of the big issues of 2021, diversity and well-being. Yeah, that's right. THE campus launched in February this year, and in the 10 months or so since then, certain key themes have emerged among the resources that our academic authors have submitted Diversity, equity and inclusion is a massive issue to tackle within higher education and it's definitely been brought into sharper focus in 2021 after the Black Lives Matter movement. And the ways in which the pandemic has also highlighted the inequality really in our society and affected lives of people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Equally, mental health and well-being of students as well as staff has been at the forefront of many people's minds which really is a reflection of society as a whole. And during yet another challenging year when COVID has presented ongoing uncertainty um, to the careers and study plans, it remains a major challenge. Mm. So one of our most popular pieces came from Pardis Madavi, the Dean of Social Sciences in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and a professor uh, in Arizona State University School of Social Transformation. And her co-author, Scott Brooks, who is an associate professor with the T. Denny Sanford School of Social and Family Dynamics. And he's also an associate director of the Global Sports Institute at ASU. Now, Pardis and Scott wrote a piece that's titled Diversity Statements, What to Avoid and What to Include. And in that, they talk about how to write a diversity statement. Uh, And when we spoke, they unpacked some of the advice that they gave in that piece. uh, And they offered some guidance to people who feel they might not have enough experience to write an effective diversity statement. So, Pardis and Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, You are the authors of our most popular piece on THE campus. Um, So could you just tell us, for anyone who doesn't know what a diversity statement is, tell us a little bit about what it is and maybe some of the background of how you started working on this piece together. Um, Well, Scott, do you want to start with what it is? And then I'll talk a little bit about how we started working on the piece. Sure, sure. Uh, So it's it's great to be with you. Thank you, Sarah, for having us on. Um, You know, the diversity statement is one of ASU's uh, requirements in terms of applying for a job. And so it's a great... It's something that, that, you know, has been in, I guess it's been operating for at least two to three years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's an upgrade from what you generally see where you're just asked if you are from a diverse group, right? That's often what, what, what universities do. And instead, ASU went the next step of saying every applicant needs to have a diversity statement. And so mm-hmm. in that, you are supposed to talk about your experiences with diversity. It's not really scripted for you. And so there's some, some range. And I think that's really important. We can start to talk, talk about what the purposes are from an institutional side, but also for you personally, which I think is what's really important. 
Yeah. And so just to continue that through line, and I also want to thank you, Sarah, for having us on and really just honored to hear that the piece resonated with so many people. I'm really thrilled to hear that. Um, you know, the the diversity statement, um, you know, is is what we wanted to do was move it from just kind of a um, sort of check the box component of an application to a really meaningful component of an application. And so this the idea for this piece actually originated when Scott and I were on a search committee together um, trying to hire in leadership. We were trying to hire a school director. And it's really interesting in leadership searches because unlike at, let's say, in a faculty search, you know, where you might ask for syllabi, teaching evaluations, a teaching vision, mm -hmm. in a leadership search, you're really only getting three pieces of, of, of data. And one is the CV, one is the cover letter, and one is the diversity statement, mm -hmm. which means that it is one third of the package. And Scott and I really wanted to emphasize that this can't just be a throwaway, okay, they wrote a diversity statement, check. But actually, this is something that helps us engage with a candidate and helps us to think through what their vision is and what the intersections are. Um, most critically, I think we realized, though, being on this search committee, that both Scott and I had a really good sense for what a diversity statement should look like. But most committees don't have a good sense for what a diversity statement should look like. And many candidates also don't. And so we saw it as a kind of a teaching opportunity for our committee um, because we, they were really struggling. They were, we, were, we were looking at diversity statements and people were like, how do I read this? And what does this mean? And so we kind of sat down and started coming up with, okay, here are some red flags and here are some kind of green lights, if you will, to look for. That's really interesting that the people who are supposed to be judging the diversity statements are also kind of fumbling around in the dark a little bit about what, what good looks like. You know, if, if I can add a little bit more to it. So we ended up with some really interesting conversations. So you know, one of them, when we first started to, to discuss it, I remember we had a we had a, a, some feedback, I'll say a response from one, one of our search committee members where they said, is there something a white person could have written that, that would have impressed you, that would have checked you know what you all see as important for a diversity statement mm. and we said yes right and literally we had a statement from a person of color where we said this is not about somebody's race or cultural background there are people of color who wrote poor statements exactly. so this is not simply about if you're white you won't be able to do it and importantly this was in the fall of 2019 so this is before Really, you look at, our, you know, our higher ed is having a deeper consciousness and wanting to think more um, deeply about this. And so that was just one of the conversations. And then really, Pardis and I started to flesh out and, and say, OK, here are the things that, you know, and you, and you see it, diversity by proxy. Right. We started to come up as social scientists with our categories and our buckets in which to, to place the diversity statements in. Hmm. So let's go into some of the, the things to avoid that you mentioned. And you, Scott, you just said diversity by proxy. You also say personal stories of redemption. Uh, you mentioned the exceptionalism argument as things to avoid. Uh, any any comments that you want to make about that or perhaps any others that you've you've noticed in, since you published the piece? I mean, I, I think that, you know, just some comment just to sort of flesh those out, you know, the 
examples of diversity by proxy is typically, you know, when a candidate might say, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, I am in one of the most diverse schools in, you know, the, the country, or, you know, my institution has just become a, an HSI. And we think that's great. But what we want to know from a candidate is what was their part in all of that, right? And so the diversity by proxy is often people taking credit for work that's not their own. Right. Um, and so, you know, that that's something that we continue to see the personal stories of redemption. One of the things we would also often see are people who would say, well, you know, my parents marched with Dr. Martin Luther King, which, again, we think is a great thing. But that's not telling us how you are going to start to engage in the meaningful work of diversity at this institution. And so I would just say, like, in the last year, you asked kind of what has been added particularly to that bucket, you know, Scott mentioned that we came up with this, really this framework in 2019 before higher ed kind of had this, this larger awakening. One of the things I've seen in the last year that I would kind of throw in the personal stories of redemption bucket are people who say, well, I support Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. which again, I'm glad that you support Black Lives Matter, but let's talk about kind of how you would apply it to the position that you're thinking about. How would you um, take that passion and that support? And what would that look like for you as a, as a candidate? Should you be successful? And you know, what would you do at our institution? So I think that that's kind of a buzzword that I've seen a lot of candidates throw into diversity statements in the last year because they're that that added, you know, that increased awakening, um, which I would say is another red flag. You can use that as a jumping off point. But again, we want to see you kind of flush that through. Hmm. And, and you know, on the exceptionalism piece, you know, there is there are a couple of parts to that. One was who is it that people often talk about helping? And so there are kind of those vulnerable folks, grad students undergrads and what you hear are these stories of exceptions and exceptional folks of color that they are often are helping. So, mm. you know, even there, you'll hear another line that is when they are acting, it is awful. It's often as this benevolent, right? This benevolent kind of hero and savior. Like I helped this one person of color who was struggling with, and they get you through all of the struggles, but then it's, it's not simply that this is something that you would do for everyone, right? You're literally able to kind of count and point out. And so we started to think about how that related to colleagues. So I would tell you in that particular time, we were looking at leadership, right? Someone to run a school of 65 faculty. Mm. So a pretty large school. Mm. And I remember we had a couple of colleagues who said, you know what? I don't think that I would have written a good diversity statement. And at that time, I remember our response being, well, that's that's OK. You're not applying for a position of leadership. Mm. There's greater expectations for those who would lead. Now, I would tell you this would apply across the board. So even more so when we ask the questions about, but how do you approach colleagues of color or from historically marginalized groups? Are you then working or is this only about leaders? It shouldn't just be about leaders. This is about going through and understanding the organization. It, it also gives you a chance to show off what you know. So that to me is the other way for people to really embrace this. So I've done my reading. I understand that we have diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, access, that these are all critical issues. And so beyond just having an understanding of what that means, those definitions, I also understand where the gaps are and how to insert myself to try to rectify, right? To create equity 
when there is an equity. When someone starts to speak about equality and very individual stuff, I'm a good person. I think if everyone just does what they're supposed to, we know we're not going to make any changes. And so those are the ways to show off. Talk about what you would do. Show that you understand structural pieces. Show that you understand intersectionality so that you're separating white women from women of color, right? So that you're able to talk about LGBT plus, right? As well as race or class. Let's show off that. And when you do that, now you have a statement that not only shows you're understanding what's going on in the time, but how you're active, right? So if we're in a movement towards anti-racism, we say you can't just sit there, you can't be neutral. And that's what a statement should do. It should show us your activism, even in the midst of still going through a journey. That's okay mm -hmm. to say you don't understand everything, but mm -hmm. what are you doing? You're not just being passive and watching or hoping you understand it requires action. Um, I would say that um, it's also important that we look at these statements as an opportunity. And I think this is what Scott was saying as well, where people will often say, well, a lot of this, this labor is rendered invisible. People talk about in, the invisible labor of diversity work. And so what we want to do is kind of shift perspective and say, this is your opportunity to render visible that very invisible labor that likely many of you are doing already. This is your opportunity to kind of be thoughtful and shine. Mm. Uh, that's a really good point. Um, one point that Scott made though, about um, kind of saying you're on a journey you know, if you haven't got it figured all out, that's fine. And I think that's one area where people are scared to get it wrong and they don't quite know what to do whenever they haven't got it wrong or they haven't quite figured it out. What, what sort of recommendations would you give to somebody who perhaps thinks that they don't have the best diversity background or history and they don't really know how to communicate that? Yeah. I mean, I think I think approaching it with humility, a humility goes a really long way in this space right in the space of diversity statements, because it's not about the hard sell. It's actually about how reflexive are you, right? How much can you deploy reflexivity and positionality, right? How much can you kind of think about that? And, and then approaching with that openness and saying, well, you know, while I haven't had a chance to get as much training on this as I'd like to, here are some thoughts. And that also extends to candidates who sometimes people will say to us, well, I haven't had a chance to do a lot of things. And we, that's okay, too. What, what we would say to that is, well, what are some of the things you would do if you could? What would you do? What would you try? But I, I am always, I'm always impressed with diversity statements where people enter with that humility of saying, you know, like, I'm still kind of feeling out the space. I know that I'm limited, but I'm, I'm being reflexive about my position and I'm, I'm trying to be thoughtful. Hmm. Yeah. And I, and I would add, I think the reflexivity, the humility, um, and and as Pardis has said, really talking about thoughts and ideas that you may have that show you're in some reflection, right? So it can't be a cop out. It needs to be, um, you know, something that shows if I'm in this position of leadership, here are the things that I would do, right? And so those are things like looking for what are, what are the metrics? Like, let me get a baseline, figure out where my unit is, let me talk about in advance thoughts that that diversify and increase access. Those would be the things to talk about in addition, right? What are the things you're willing to try? If you can even reflect on, you know, your blindness and how you become more aware of a blindness, mm. even that's fine. You haven't had an opportunity, but based on going through this journey, you're starting to see things you didn't see before 
And mm-hmm. this leads you to some ideas. All of that is great. Hmm. Yeah. And, and if you're, you know, if you're a faculty member, or you're, you know, you're a candidate, you're a grad student looking to become a postdoc or a faculty member, um, you know, it's, it's also an opportunity for you to think about your discipline, the discipline that you came out of and kind of what is the history of the knowledge production of that discipline. And it's a moment to reflect and say, you know, maybe when I was going, you know, I, I read a really thoughtful statement from a philosophy um, faculty member who was saying, look, when I was going through grad school, it was mostly dead white men. And I want to interrogate that. I want to ask why these, so like, who are the voices that are missing and why do these syllabi look this way? So there are ways to kind of, I think, adjust it at, at different levels. Um, another one of the recommendations that you give in the piece is um, showing evidence of addressing structural challenges. And when I read that, I thought immediately that that sounds quite scary, especially if someone is perhaps early in their career and you don't want to rock the boat uh, and activism might be something that's really important to you, but you also you know, want to get a job. Any advice for people who might be a bit scared to rock the boat, even though they know that they need to? I would suggest that it, it's not always as, as deep as rocking the boat as some may think, right? There's, there's a lot of small ways to address things. Um, personal experience, I, I, when I first started, I had a lot of uh, students coming to office hours, part of the invisible labor of being a faculty mm-hmm. of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I did was I figured, you know what? I can't be here for four hours. Literally, I would be putting in some three, four hours staying until everyone left. So I institutionalized it by creating groups. So I knew that it was always fun for my students to talk about dating. I often talked about dating in my courses. And so I started to hold a session once a week where we would talk for an hour. And at first it was just a way of how can I get all these students who want FaceTime, who want a relationship in the same room where we're often talking about some of these same same things or they just are coming to hang out, which is all good as well. And so we started to just meet and then they started to bring in friends. And at a certain point I went, let's do some research out of this. So we started to do research. We started to hold speed dating events. And these were things that students started to sign up for independent studies, started doing literature review, Hmm. students who had never done research before, but it was because it was a topic that was interesting It's because I was giving them my time. And so that's not rocking the boat. That's literally meeting the needs of students who have an interest, who want to learn more about what this academic thing is and who want to develop these relationships. So it can be everything from that to asking questions like, when was the last time that we admitted a Black American male in our graduate program? And I've been at three different universities where when I came in, it had been a decade since they had had a Black American male admitted and in their program. After I got there, they we started to have more, right. but literally in each of these programs. So I looked for some of those canaries in the mines too. Sure. Do we have, which populations are missing? How can I bring this into a conversation? And just having the conversation leads to people's greater awareness and they have to start to think about it. And in, and in both of those ways, I didn't feel as though I was rocking any boats. Mm-hmm. I was simply doing my share. And can I just build on that by saying there, there's no change that's too small, right? So I know this that that, that that kind of recommendation might imply like a big change, like promotion and tenure. And 
I mean, that is something for leadership to think about. But, you know, there are also changes, you know, a, a very thoughtful statement I read was from um, somebody who had been a graduate student worker um, and had been working in IT. And one of the things they noticed was that a lot of the keyboards and the like the mouse or the, the mice were actually made for male hands, the size of the hands. And so they actually were really thoughtful about saying, could we order different different versions of this, mm. right? Um, I've also seen staff in the budget office thinking about how is diversity a budgeting strategy as well. And so I guess I would say that that ev this encompasses every area. And so um, it definitely can be overwhelming, but I think it's also an invitation to think about, okay, well, this is my area. You know, how might I think through it? You know, we have colleagues, because right now at ASU, we're also baking this into our kind of our system, like this sort of Jedi system, where we're actually saying that Jedi statements are going to be a part of annual performance reviews. And so we are very fortunate to have some folks who work in our mailroom who have actually come up with a new, more legible way of dividing the mail that's more accessible, that's more um, disability friendly, right? And so no change is too, is too small. And all of these are examples of structural changes that create an ecosystem where diversity can flourish. Um, Pardis, can you tell us a little bit about JEDI? We've mentioned it a couple of times. And just to clarify for our listeners uh, what this framework is that you uh, developed. Yeah, so JEDI stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And by foregrounding the J, by foregrounding justice, we are actually foregrounding a call to action. Um, one of the things we've observed is that a lot of DEI work can either become, like I said earlier, just like a checklist, something that you just check off the box, or it can become siloed. And people can see it as, okay, well, that's that's the responsibility of the chief diversity officer. That's the responsibility for the vice provost of you know, equity and inclusion. But JEDI really is, is a framework that says, actually, no, this is everybody's responsibility, which is why I brought forward the examples I just brought forward. This is a, a movement and it's an invitation. It's a calling in versus a calling out, but it's an invitation to join a movement for change. And we center justice to center that change. Hmm. Hmm. Um, my final question for both of you is just to get your opinions about diversity statements and the role that they play in are they effective? Are they going to increase the number of male Black Americans that are uh, admitted to grad schools in the country? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I, I, I think that it was a deciding factor for us on our search committee. It changed the way that we thought about candidates. Um, and so it made it really clear what we were looking for. And I think that um, so yes, I think that it is very important and critical that, that it's not the only thing that can be done, mm -hmm. but I do see it as a great step. Um, one, one last piece I want to double down on the experience, being able to speak beyond your own goals and what's good for you, being able to talk about how you will help colleagues, because often the focus becomes on those outside the academy or grad students, again, those vulnerable, but we sometimes forget that our peers are vulnerable, right? That mm -hmm. there are equity issues within. And so as we continue to, to, to think beyond just those who are in leadership looking for you know, positions, but those who are our colleagues, I think this is a very important first step. What are our colleagues experience that we're, you know, these potential new colleagues 
And how do they come in with experiences? One of the things that I think you get from any institution is you learn a norm, right? You learn a set of norms and a culture. So we're looking for those colleagues who are going to come in and bring a culture that that fits in some ways, but also that advances us in others. And so these diversity statements give us a first step. Otherwise, you might only be able to hear it if they mention it in a job talk or in those settings. But that's only if people ask the right questions, if you don't run out of time. So this gives a, a stage to people, again, being able to, to explain where they are, how they're thinking and how they fit in. Hmm. And I would just add to that. I think that um, the fact that that uh, diversity statements are asked for, you know, in a search, that should be a signal to candidates that this is an institution that really values this. And I would encourage candidates to ask, okay, well, is it really just at the job stage? I mean, Scott was talking about this too. That's why for us with the whole Jedi framework, it's not about just, okay, well, having this as as a part of the application. We actually now have, uh, it's actually now a rule that all search committees have to go through training on how to read and evaluate a a diversity statement. Mm -hmm. We also have it baked into our annual performance review. We are now talking about baking it into promotion and tenure so that there is a through line. But I also think that um, it's it's an invitation for candidates to start to engage in different ways. And I think it's a signal of positive change. Pardis and Scott, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for giving us a bit more information about this and, and filling in the gaps in the lines. There aren't many gaps, but I feel like you could write many more pieces for us like that. And I hope that you will uh, at some point in the future. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate it. So that's Scott and Pardis ending on a positive note about the role diversity statements play in helping universities really choose and find people who can fit into and even advance the culture of their institutions. Miranda, tell us who you had a chat with. Well, I spoke to Eleanor Reaver, who is an Associate Professor and Director of Studies at the Institute for Advanced Teaching and Learning at the University of Warwick. Um, And she's done a lot of research into how different teaching environments affect student well-being. So she wrote a really great advice resource based on the findings of that research and providing kind of advice and tips off the back of that. Um, But I mean, there is a kind of link because as Scott and Pardis acknowledge in their resource on diversity statements, you know, this diversity statements are one part of wider structural changes needed um, in higher education to create a more inclusive and equitable system. And really, that's what Eleanor, in many ways, is um, advising on, is creating learning environments in which all students can thrive. So again, it is really about inclusivity. I should also mention that when I spoke to Elena, she had just given birth um, just one week before to a little boy called Nathaniel. So oh, wow. congratulations to her. <laughs> Elena, you wrote one of our most popular resources of 2021. It was a really useful piece focused around the idea of well-being pedagogies and it was based on earlier research you'd done looking at student well-being in the teaching and learning environment so I hope you might be able to tell us a little bit more about that research and what it set out to do and what it revealed. 
Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me here uh, to talk to you about uh, this, this research that I conducted um, a few years ago uh, in partnership with uh, undergraduate and postgraduate students as well as colleagues. Our research set off to uh, try to really understand how the teaching and learning environment and everything that happens in there, so from um, the uh, resources that students uh, engage with uh, to uh, the nature uh, of the environment, if it's a seminar or if it's a, a lecture theatre, to the type of assessment, the guidance, the feedback the students receive, how everything that contributes to create such environment uh, impact or not on uh, students' well-being at university. Um, obviously, students spend a lot of time, a lot of their time in teaching and learning environments. And obviously, um, studying and engaging with, uh, with learning is uh, one of the primary uh, activity that they do at university. Um, so we, we really wanted to understand how this, um, this, this, this activity, how this, uh, this study engagement impacts on, um, on their well-being. And uh, unsurprisingly, we found out that um, the students' well-being is highly impacted by their experiences in teaching a learning environment. Um, the way in which are taught, the way in which they interact among themselves within the learning environment, um, the type of assessment they receive and so on and so forth. All of this uh, can be seen as a potential stressor as well as an opportunity for alleviating uh, issues around well-being. Um, if, we, if we think also about the link between well-being and study, I think every one of us can, can, can empathise with the fact that um, only if we are well, we are able to, to study or work well. So it's, it's a kind of a double way. On one side, the learning environment really impacts on students' well-being, and on the other side, um, the way in which we feel and the way in which we function uh, really impacts on the way in which we study. It's a sort of a, um, you know, it's a kind of a double relationship. And it's becoming more and more apparent and more research came out from other colleagues as well, um, how, uh, as I said, um, everything that happened uh, within um, the, the study experience uh, can have a positive or negative impact on how students feel. And uh, we wanted to really understand what were those characteristics of the learning environment that um, could positively or negatively affect the most um, students' well-being. And we discovered that uh, by our focus groups and interviews uh, of about 200 students at our University of Warwick, uh, we found out that um, really a student-centered environment where students feel they can uh, interact, uh, that they can be owners of the learning journey that can be involved in developing materials and so on it, it really positive impact impacts on their well-being um, because of course um, they they feel valued they feel that have a, they have a face they feel that the presence uh, it's important they feel seen and um, and obviously uh, also that really helps to develop the skills and their self-esteem and so on and so forth uh, important is also the connection the integration within the classroom. Um, so students that feel connected to their peers and to their teachers, obviously 
reports higher level of well-being and this is something that um, you know we understand from well-being research um, levels of connection level of um, uh, social connection satisfaction are often associated to higher level of well-being and we found out that this is particularly important for example for international students who uh, already are experiences perhaps uh, some form of disconnections outside the university environment having moved uh, uh, far from home and so on and emotional intelligence is also incredibly important. So um, the fact that students felt cared for um, from the students or the other students, the teacher, um, they can talk, they can be listened to, they don't feel um, that they cannot ask a question is also incredibly important. And also we found out that there is a loop link between staff and students' well-being, and this really reflects the relationship um, that there is in, in a classroom and in education setting where students and teachers are very much linked. <laughs> Teaching and learning is a relationship. And if one side of this relationship um, the well-being of one side of this relationship suffers, the other one suffers too. Uh, staff and students' well-being, let's say, are two faces of the same coin in a sense. So we also found out how important it is if we really wanted to improve students' well-being in the learning environment that we also take care of staff well-being. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, you'd already mentioned that there's a, a vicious cycle in itself in well-being and the link between well-being and learning. So then that, I guess you've got another link then between the well-being of staff and students. Just to distill some of what you said down, you know, the advice you shared to, to help educators foster better student well-being, I would say very much focused on three key themes. One is very much this idea of creating a welcoming learning environment for students. Another was purposefully building connections which obviously when teaching online specifically you might have to take a slightly more proactive approach to and then the final one was developing inclusive learning strategies why would you focus on these three things specifically um, I think that in particular, as you said, when, when you're thinking about the online learning environment and also, um, you know, most recently, the online learning environment in which we have worked, um, you know, within during a, a, a pandemic that has really dramatically affected um, the life of, of so many. Um, those points were, were really, you know, striking uh, in a sense that we really needed and, and became very apparent that, you uh, in order to make sure that students could positively feel valued and seen within a learning environment of that type, we really needed to, to, to foster and to create uh, a learning environment where students could feel uh, at ease, um, they could feel welcome, uh, they, they could feel that almost uh, they were entering a sort of, I want to say sanctuary, you know, um, while, you know, the stress of the pandemic was happening, while so many um, aspects of their life were, were disrupted. And um, many of our students, uh, and I'm sure it's the same across across the UK, they, they perhaps, as I said before, they come from from other countries. They they've just uh, they just arrived, um, or uh, they may they may have transitioned from uh, from secondary school. So a big change compared from uh, from from what they were experiencing the year before, and um, uh, creating environments where. 
students could feel they can be themselves and they can express themselves and environment where they can be welcome and valued uh, it became quickly apparent that was the number one priority and in fact uh, when discussing with students what made them made them feel well and function well um, in in such learning environment they always mentioned uh, the fact that they were able to uh, be seen regardless of the fact that uh, we were not in the same classroom um, the fact that they were able to have meaningful conversation with with other students and the fact that um, the different uh, learning uh, styles and learning needs that they had were valued we have to create learning environment where everybody can be themselves and um, the way in which they learn, the way in which they um, they approach knowledge has to be uh, valued and has to be really accommodated within the learning environment. And I argue that uh, the online can, um, can definitely offer a lot of possibility and opportunities uh, for inclusivity um, as well. Um, some students might not be at ease in a large classroom with um, lots of people around them and the online space can create an alternative so while on one hand might have obviously disrupted uh, usual interactions on the other has also offered um, a lot of new spaces and a lot of new ways in which we can um, welcome uh, a variety of students and in which we can uh, make sure working with them that uh, the environment is um, is right um, uh, yeah. So yes, first of all, we give a welcome. We make sure that everybody is uh, feels included, feels feels valued, and then of course we start to build on inclusivity, and we start to build on making sure that students feel that their presence is necessary within the learning environment. They can contribute. They can be actively engaged within that. Yeah, and that is one of the silver linings of moving things online. You know, it's become more apparent that that does. While there are disadvantages, it also offers great kind of flexibility and possibility and potential for offering new ways and new modes of learning, which may work really well for some students. On that point of online, when you originally wrote the resource for us, we were still very much in a period of everything being remote across higher education, across um, the whole of society in the UK, certainly. Now that things have returned to a large degree to in-person teaching would you update any of this advice or do you think exactly the same advice stands really for in-person teaching um, I think that what um, what we understood from from our research, and this has been really uh, highlighted also from other research that came out in uh, in the past few months, is that really um, there are some key points that support students' well-being in the learning environment uh, and those points don't really change depending mm. on uh, the type of environment we act, with, we act within. As I said, you know, having a face, let's say, for a student yeah. is something that really, really is important um, and that is not something that, you know, is surprising, right? It, it's something that that I think everybody can can understand and can empathize with, you know, the, 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 the desire of connection, this desire of uh, of 
being meaningfully in contact with the teachers and and with their peers uh, is something that doesn't change depending yeah. on the environment. But what changes um, is how we react to it. Obviously, the environment, as you said, um, brings different kind of um, opportunities and challenges. And uh, the teachers and the students, I very much argue for co-creation in this respect. So I argue for a teacher students to be able to explore together what works and what doesn't uh, in different environment, they can discover how to respond to these not really changing needs uh, within different environments. So I would say that the kind of the, the, the principle remains in a sense, but the ways in which we, we, we respond to them, obviously they have to change on the basis of the way in which we teach. I think that the best way is really uh, for students and, and staff uh, to, to, to work together and to try to um, explore ways uh, that um, the environment can be changed and be shaped depending on their needs. And perhaps assessment is something that really is a big stressor uh, for students. Uh, we, we know that uh, the anxiety related to us to assessment, the type of uh, emotions that are involved when, uh, when assessment occurs. So for example, um, even uh, co-producing uh, guidelines uh, towards assessment, uh, working with students, understanding how to support them online or remotely or, or uh, in person in their run towards assessment is also something that, that we can do uh, regardless. So assessment is a stress is a stressor. No matter yeah. what, uh, yeah. but we can we can really work with students in different environments, understanding how can we support students, how can we make sure that they can approach assessment in a way that um, can can also can become um, an experience that yes remains a bit stressful and it's big step, but also is meaningful for the learning journey and is something that ultimately helps them to to. What, what they want uh, in their in their university career, I think you know principle remain the same, but uh, really a big work is needed in making sure that we can adapt and we can respond adequately um, where where we work within. Yeah, of course, and that's I guess an area where you know arguably for some academics and lecturers it might all come very naturally or seem quite clear how to create some of those uh, or meet some of those needs like so the building connections and, and just teaching in very kind of inclusive ways for others perhaps they need a bit more kind of guidance or you know personal development to help them sort of understand how to approach that so I wanted to, to ask as Warwick as a university has produced a whole well-being pedagogies library of sort of resor resources to help with this can you tell us a bit more about what exactly it is then how it works yeah so again um this came out exactly as you said of of the research that we um we did in the past and we identified uh, you know what kind of impacts uh, positively and negatively of students well-being and naturally um in conversation with students and staff uh, we realized that even though, as you said, even though uh, some colleagues and some students um, understood 
you know, in a, in a more clear manner, how to uh, kind of uh, translate these, these needs into practical actions uh, that uh, could um, somehow support students well being and foster positive uh, experiences within the learning environment for other colleagues. They, they they wanted to uh, to receive more guidance they they wanted to have more space to explore therefore I, I decided to to try to pull together uh, a resource uh, where all staff and students can really find inspiration for uh, you know for for the space they want to create uh, for the educational space they want to create so this uh, I co-created this library with uh, with a with a pool of students and and colleagues and uh, we interviewed a great number of colleagues and students across Warwick and uh, we distilled um, about uh, 80, 90, between 80 and 90 is growing at the moment, um, pedagogic practices uh, that can be, um, that can respond, practically respond to the needs we were talking before of creating a student-centered environment, intercultural, international integration. Uh, emotional intelligence and staff and students' well-being. So any colleague, any students at Warwick, they can go on this um, online library, they can uh, search um, a pedagogy uh, on the basis of um, the type of classroom they're going to teach. So if they want to, if they're going to teach over, let's say, 300 students or a medium-sized uh, class or a small class, they can uh, select, they can filter the pedagogies if our pedagogies are oriented to uh, in-classroom activities or assessment time or guidance production and so on and so forth. Uh, they can filter these pedagogies on the basis of uh, well-being principles. So if this pedagogy is designed for developing connection and integration or for uh, supporting staff and students well-being in the learning environment and so on and so forth. Um, they can also select on the basis if it's postgraduate, undergraduate. So basically they are able really to tailor down uh, their, their search and they can explore uh, which one among these uh, 80, 90 pedagogies can, can actually effectively uh, respond to the need of creating um, a certain environment um, in, in a way that is meaningful for them. And That's for each pedagogy, um, there is the theory behind, but also we provide very, very practical examples. So colleagues have been very generous and uh, they've shared uh, material, they've shared uh, cases of studies. So you read something is really useful because, um, and there is a great generosity that is part, I think, of supporting well-being, where uh, colleagues have really somehow donated their experience and, and the resources they've developed. And uh, um, so everybody can, can really access it and have a clear idea of how the assessment work is not just a few kind of words here and there, but is a practical example of how it works. So yes, and uh, as I said, it was co-created. So students really contributed to it and uh, you can find most of students voices and the aim is really to to support colleagues who are also you know as we know often under very heavy workload uh, to, to to really be able to streamline and go and get the jam they need for for creating that environment that they really want to support i was just going to jump in and say I think it's brilliant that you've obviously contextualized the advice in the way you describe because obviously that is what people need they need to be able to translate the kind of theory of what 
they want to achieve, which of course is to create inclusive student-centered learning environments, but to be able to access help that allows them to translate that to their specific context, their specific teaching context, makes it much more easily applicable and therefore hopefully helpful. I'm sure it is hugely helpful to many, many of your staff who, as you say, are pulled in a lot of directions already, as as all academics are. So thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been um, really fascinating hearing about your research and how you've actually used that to provide lots of practical advice to to others. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. I think a lot of what Eleanor says there will ring true for all educators. You know, this focus upon keeping students and their needs at the heart of absolutely everything they do. Certainly. And it it rings true with um, another one of our most read pieces. It's on our list for 2021. That's on a similar topic uh, as Elena is looking at the pedagogies of kindness. Um, You could see that piece and others addressing some other topics, including content creation. Should academics be doing it or not? Assessment uh, and many more on THE campus. So if you just visit timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus, that's where you will find it all. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, and have a wonderful holiday break. We'll see you next time. Bye. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.